Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Spirit, I pray that you'd open our eyes this morning and open our ears. I pray that we'd get it. Um, pray that you would uh, reveal Jesus to us this morning and uh, give us a glimpse of your love. Make us more like you this morning as we turn to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone, everyone here has probably been home sick and uh, spent their morning watching uh, The Price is Right. Either that or MASH. Both shows are just barely better than being sick. But the, the MASH isn't. I'd rather be sick than watch MASH. What's funny about The Price is Right is essentially every game is the same. It's just wrapped up differently. It's a little bit like Taco Bell. It's like all the same ingredients, just packaged differently. The, every game is won on the show The Price is Right by doing the same thing. Everything comes back to the same thing, which is really properly assessing something's value. You got to put the right price next to the item. If you do, you win. If you don't, you lose, right? And what's interesting about the price is right is that nobody nobody does it alone. They invite the group that's gathered to scream at the contestants, you know. 500 You know. And and uh it's, it seems that most of the, those that are gathered in the audience have like UCLA sweaters on or, you know, they're, but they're screaming prices at the contestants and they're trying to put the right price next to the item. They're trying to properly assess something's value. What's interesting about the show too is that you don't typically have to ascribe value to just like one thing. You have to do it in relation to others. So there's typically like four or five prices up there, right? And then they, they've got a, a boat, <laughs> like a dated boat, a uh, tent trailer, a bar of zest soap, and a box of hamburger helper. And you've got to put the right price next to the item. And as uh, Jesus followers here at Radiant Church, um, we're trying to do the same. We want to give credit where credit is due. We want to assign and ascribe value to the things that God ascribes value to. 
people differ on what's worthy and what's not worthy. People have different ideas about what things are worth. Uh, We're constantly, if you don't know this about yourself, you're constantly pricing things in life. You're constantly putting price tags on things. We're constantly voting with our limited time, uh, treasure, and talent. If you've worked a retail job, you know how much time is spent either pricing things that come in the shipment or marking things down. You're constantly pricing things and constantly marking things down. At least that's what I did when I worked at Copeland's. And I think that as people, we need to constantly be reminded of what is valuable. There's a continuing need in life to switch the price tags and mark things down. There's a constant need to switch the price tags so that first things are first, second things are second, and third things are third, and and so on. And that's why, I don't know about you guys, but that's why I love being together uh, on Sunday mornings. Even for me, I feel a little bit like that contestant in The Price is Right, where sometimes I just don't know what something's worth. And, and it means a lot to me to be able to turn around and see a group of people screaming out prices and reminding me what's important and reminding me that first things need to be first. And I don't know what happens during the course of the week, and I think Mike alluded to it as well, but it's just so easy to forget what's valuable and what's important. I find that in life we, really, we often need to be reminded because it's like the small things, the petty things can assume enormous importance in our lives. Really petty things. If left to yourself, like in your own mind, really petty things can assume enormous importance. And genuinely important things, they get very little attention. This is kind of what we do here at at, uh, Radiant Church. This is what we're hoping to help people do. We're helping people ascribe proper value. We're helping people price things in this church. It looks a little bit like this. Uh, No, Dad, don't put that price next to your boat. Uh, Put it next to your kids. No, Mom, don't put that type of value. Don't ascribe that type of of value to, to bitterness and unforgiveness. No, young man... Young woman, don't put too much value on what people think about you. Place value and ascribe value on what God thinks. And we're constantly, as a church, switching price tags, reminding each other what matters, what's important. And I don't know why there's such a drift away from what's really important, but there is. And there's a constant battle to um, swim upstream. With that in mind, I just wanted to, again, share there is a marriage workshop this coming weekend. 
November 5th and 6th. It's Friday from 9 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. And it's Saturday from 9 in the morning to 6 in the evening. And I'd encourage you to invest in what's really important. To remember what's really important and invest in it. We've got some scholarship money that's available. If it's money that's keeping you from participating in the workshop, don't let that happen. Talk to us about where you're at and what you're needing in order to be a part of it. There's going to be some incredible um, tools that you're given at this workshop. It's not eight hours of lecture. Um, The days go pretty quick because you're working through some things and hearing from different people in a group. It's going to be a fun time. So anyways, please, if you're thinking about going... Don't think about it any longer. Go. And see Connie and Taylor if you need to sign up. Connie and Taylor, would you guys stand? Thanks. Everyone would probably agree. I I think... um, Not just Christians, but non-Christians alike would probably agree that love is the most valuable thing. Love is more valuable, actually, than life itself. If you think about it, we want to live because we love. Henry Drummond, in his book, The Greatest Thing in the World, writes this, To love abundantly is to live abundantly, and to live forever is to love forever. Hence, eternal life is inextricably bound up with love. We want to live forever for the same reason we want to live tomorrow. Why do we want to live forever? It is because there is someone who loves you and whom you want to see tomorrow and be with and love back. There is no other other reason why we should live on than that we love and are beloved. To live forever is to love forever. We've been talking a lot about the supreme thing here at Radiant Church. What's the thing that we could do? Um, what's, the, what's the greatest thing we could do together? What's the greatest thing we could achieve as a church? And 1 Corinthians has helped us land on this idea that the greatest thing we could do together as a church is love. Love God, love one another, and love others. This is the win at Radiant. I think, again, both Christians and non-Christians would probably agree that uh, love is most important. I think the difference is that we disagree on, on, on a definition of what love is and probably our motivation, why we love. But everyone agrees, right? All you need is love. This week, we're going to talk about the definition of love. Next week, we're going to talk about our motivation to love. As Christians, we know um, that we're... I I made one teaching slide. It took me like 45 minutes. Is it up there? Yes. Here it is. As Christians, we're called to pursue love. That is, it's to be our aim, our goal, 
We wake up in the morning and we say, how, God, can I love? Teach me to love. It's my goal. It's my aim for the day. Colossians tells us that we're to clothe ourselves in love. 1 Thessalonians says that we're to increase and abound in love. Philippians 2 tells us that we're to be united in love. 1 Peter says be fervent in love. And Romans 12 tells us to be sincere in our love. Love must be sincere, says Romans. This is, um, this is, pretty, this is pretty difficult. Love must be sincere, must be true, must be genuine, must be wholehearted. I don't know if this is difficult for you, uh, but it is for me because a lot of times I feel like my job um, as a pastor is to fake like I love people, that that's part of my job description, you know, is just to put on that smile, yeah, (laughs) good to see you, you know, that that part of my job is just to fake it, uh, fake that I love you. And I don't want to fake it. I don't want to fake it. I don't want to fake it. I want it for real. Jesus, he gave unbelievers the right to judge the reality of our relationship with God. Jesus gave unbelievers... Jesus gave unbelievers the right to judge the reality of our relationship with God on the basis of love. He gave people that right. You have a right to judge these people. You have a right to judge their relationship with me on the basis of love. And what's the judgment? What's the verdict from the world around us? The church is full of hypocrites. If I had a dollar. A hypocrite is a person whose speech and actions are contrary to one another. He's one who puts on a mask and pretends to be what he is not. I guess the question I would ask us this morning is that everyone would probably say that we love. But are our speech and our actions contrary to one another? Do we just say that we love? Or do we really love? And how do we know what love is? There's a list of things that Jesus, um, that Jesus got on hypocrites for. If I would have had time to make another slide, it would have said, you may be a hypocrite if, dot, dot, dot. And then these would have followed. These are the things that Jesus got on hypocrites for. This is how you know you might be a hypocrite, is whenever you do right, it's to be seen by others. You might be a hypocrite if you love titles and honors and respect from others. You might be a hypocrite if you strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. 
That is, you major on minors, and you minor on majors. That's not in the Bible. You might be a hypocrite if you neglect the inward parts of religion and only observe the outward parts. This one's brutal. This heads up. You might be a hypocrite if your religion depends on the place or the time of day. Tozer has a quote that says, if you don't worship God seven days a week, you don't worship Him one day a week. You might be a hypocrite if you're severe with others and very lenient with yourself. And last, you might be a hypocrite if you spent this whole time thinking that these things were true of other people. That's not in the Bible either. But true. Do we really love people or are we pretending to love people? Are we acting like we love people? I am, I, I, felt like I was going to have trouble standing up here and preaching this this morning because I was uh, really convicted as I read this over and over again. But my actions uh, and my words are contrary to one another. There's a gap between those two. And uh, I've brought that before the Lord. In Isaiah 5, um, Isaiah is a prophet, he's a preacher. And one of the, the great joys of being a prophet or a preacher is that you get to say things like, woe to you. And I look forward to it all week. Woe to you. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And, and in Isaiah 5, this is what Isaiah is doing. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, 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 and you, woe. Woe to you. And then God comes. And what does Isaiah start screaming? Woe to me. Woe to me, woe to me, woe to me. And I had that happen this week. Woe to me. First Corinthians 13, um, Paul writes as a rebuke to the church. I know you've probably heard it at weddings, but it is a rebuke to a church. What's interesting is that this church in Corinth is out of control. And Paul starts his rebuke to this church by saying, though I speak in the tongues of men and angels. It's as if Paul knew it when he was writing 1 Corinthians 13, woe to me, I need to hear this. It's not just the Corinthians that need to hear this. I need to hear this. Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. It's just sound. With no soul and no feeling. I think Paul was reminding himself in 1 Corinthians 13 that he had room to grow as well. Our last week in Rotary, we talked about um, the, really the value of love, the supremacy of love. 
Paul establishes love as the supreme thing in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians 13. You can turn there now with me. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This Corinthian church, they were obsessed with miraculous gifts. And Paul's writing them because they're missing the motive and they're missing the goal of these gifts. They've made them an end. And he's calling their attention back to love as being the real sign of Christian maturity. Last week as we were here, we talked about how we love. We have a capacity to love because God first loved us. And if we have any hope of loving God... And loving others, we first have to understand God's love for us. If we have any hope of doing this stuff that we're going to talk about today, you've got to understand God's love for you. If you don't, quit now. Just don't even try. (laughs) It's supernatural. You, You need to look at him. He needs to, anyways, just quit. It's going to be worse. Beloved, says 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It goes on to say we love because he first loved us. So we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians today and bring some definition to love. The first three verses in 1 Corinthians establish the value of love. Establish the supremacy of love. But it goes on in 1 Corinthians to talk about the virtues of love. And it goes on to define what love is. How do we know if we've got love? How do we know if we're doing it for real? Paul gives us 14 marks of a loving person. And I'm not going to touch on all 14, so just chill out. I have a 14-point sermon with 15 minutes left. He starts with two things that love is. Paul starts by talking about two things that love is. Right out of the gates, love's described by action words and not concepts. Right out of the gates. True love can be seen in action, and it's always demonstrated by action. And how does he start? Love is patient. The new King James, I think, says it better when it says it suffers long. That love is long-suffering. What a way to uh, start the bidding 
What a way to come out of the blocks. I remember I had a bunch of conversations when I was getting ready to ask Tiffany to marry me. And I'd ask older men these type of questions. How did you know that she was the one, you know? How did you know that you were in love? Can you imagine if someone would have responded by saying, is there suffering? (laughs) What? (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. You mean sleeplessness? No, suffering. Long, long suffering. (laughs) No. Well, then you might not have love. I I just think it's incredible. Right out of the block. Love is... Long suffering. It suffers long. It is said of God in First Peter, it said this, He is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God's love is in us, then we will be long-suffering towards those that annoy us and those that hurt us. He also says that love is kind. Then he goes on to say that there are eight things that love ain't. Eight things that love is not. It's not envious. It's not proud, not arrogant, not rude, not cliquish, not touchy, not suspicious, and not happy with evil. Love does not envy It does not parade itself. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. I want to talk about a few of these. Envy. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not easily angered. Love that the word easily is in there. I'm going to talk about that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Love keeps its distance from envy. It doesn't resent when someone else is promoted or blessed. And I think that envy is no small sin, and that's why I want to talk about it. Because I think... That we don't think it's such a big deal. I think we actually honestly say things to each other like, man, I am so envious of you. And it's like totally acceptable to say that to somebody. I'm just so jealous. You know, I think we've uh, made little of the sin of envy. And the Bible doesn't. Envy murdered Abel. Envy enslaved Joseph. And envy put Jesus on the cross. Envy crucified Jesus. Matthew 27 says this, For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. He couldn't stand what was going on through his life. And there's a couple types of envy. And I honestly think that one's worse than the other. But there's one that says, I want what they have. I want what they have. But there's a second type of envy that says, I don't want them to have what they have. 
them God. Don't do that for them. I don't want them to have what they have. It's not just that I want what they have. I don't want them to have what they have. This is so apparent in Remy, my daughter, right now. She doesn't want anything until somebody else wants it. She doesn't want the swing. She doesn't want to eat. She doesn't want anything until someone steps in and says, I want that. And then all of a sudden, she's like, mine. You know? All of a sudden, she wants to swing. Listen to this scary, scary passage from James 3. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Love does not parade itself. Love, it doesn't have to be in the limelight. Love doesn't have to get attention. It doesn't have to get attention to do a good job. Or to be satisfied with the result of what they've done. Love gives because it loves to give. Not for the praise it gets when it shows itself off. I think many people do things that would be perceived as loving, but I think that they're a parade. I read this quote from someone that said that this type of parade is pride, looking for glory in the appearance of love. Pride, looking for glory in the appearance of love. This goes on for me every time we take like a uh, missions trip. And there's part of me that's doing something that has the appearance of love. But I'm thirsty for glory. Thirsty for the attention. Looking for glory with the appearance of love. Yeah, well, I can't make it today. We're actually headed off to Sudan. We're going to dig wells. The people there, they don't know their right hand from their left. We're going to share the gospel with them. Love in action is content to work behind the scenes. Is your love content to work behind the scenes? Love is not easily angered. I want to say that love does not exclude anger, but it's not easily angered. God's anger was and is an expression of his love. And because we were created in God's image, we have a capacity to both love and get angry. We need to take responsibility for disciplining ourselves so that our capacity for anger is triggered by the same things that trigger God's anger, which are injustice, suffering, oppression. 
Anger should arise because of love, not in contradiction to love. Anger should arise because of love, not in contradiction to love. C.S. Lewis writes this. This is another, this is a great C.S. Lewis quote. Anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. Anger doesn't have to be opposed to love. It can be in the service of love. We'll get to talk more about this at some point. Just wanted to point that out. I love the appearance of easily. It's not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. By its very nature, love is vulnerable. Right? By its very nature, love is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to hurt, rejection, ridicule, being ignored. You've all experienced every one of those things. And what I want to say to you this morning is that you can't keep a record of wrongs to protect yourself. No self-salvation through keeping a record of wrongs. I know that you've extended love and you've felt hurt, you've felt rejected, you've felt ignored. You can't keep a record of wrongs in order to protect yourself. It will continue to be vulnerable. The kind of love being described in 1 Corinthians 13, you've heard this before, is agape love. It's from agape that we get our English word agony. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Another thing that I want to point out to you here is that love rejoices in the truth. It does not ignore the truth. Love doesn't overlook the truth. It doesn't ignore it. It rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't go uh, find a happy place. Love is not fantasy. And I think that some people think that love ignores the truth. That it just closes its eyes to the reality that's going on. Jesus modeled this for us brilliantly. In this story that I think many of you have heard, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before a group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until now only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, leave your life of sin. In the story, Jesus doesn't deny the truth. In this story of extending grace to this woman... In the story of loving this woman, he doesn't ignore the truth. He doesn't ignore the truth of the woman's situation. He actually affirms it. You need to repent and you need to change. He affirms the truth. But he also doesn't deny her grace and he doesn't deny her love. 
He offers it. And he sends her away cleansed and forgiven. In Jesus, we see the perfect model of truth and love or grace and truth. There's four more things that love is. C.H. Spurgeon calls these love's sweet companions. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. The problem with this passage is all things. The word all is a problem. I looked it up in the Greek and it means all. I was... (laughs) I was hoping to find some contingency, some sort of loophole. This is what it means. It means all. We can all bear some things. We can all believe some things. We can all hope some things. We can all endure some things. But God calls us deeper. God calls us further. Bear, not some things, but all things. Believe, not some things, but all things. Hope, not in some things, but all things. Endure, not just some things, but all things. This this word bear, I was so convicted when I read this. Let me pass it on to you. The Greek verb means to endure without divulging to the world personal distress. It bears all things without talking about what it has to bear. It endures without divulging to the world personal distress. Love Paul is saying, holds tight like a vessel. And a loving person contains himself in silence and stays away from venting when prompted by personal hardship. Youch. Because don't we bear things, but then we talk about those things, we vent those things, right? I mean, we're willing to bear Is that a... That's okay. Is that a Kanye West ringtone? That's okay. We bear things and then we talk about those things, right? I mean, we'll put up with it, but then we talk about it. Oh, man. So-and-so's killing me. My boss is freaking nuts, man. You wouldn't believe what he does. My wife is out of control. (laughs) Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. Covers. C.H. Spurgeon writes, Love covers, that is, it never proclaims the errors of good men. I know some that are not half so eager to publish the gospel 
as they are to publish slander. Love stands in the presence of fault with a finger on her lip. Love believes all things. It chooses to believe the best of others. It hopes all things. Love has a confidence in the future. It's not pessimistic. Even when love gets hurt, even when love gets hurt, it doesn't say things like, it's going to be this way forever. It's probably only going to get worse. Love doesn't say these things. It hopes in the best and it hopes in God. And then it endures all things. Most of us can bear all things, believe all things, and hope all things, but only for a while. The greatness of agape love is that it keeps on bearing, keeps on believing, it keeps on hoping. Doesn't give up, doesn't give in. Here's the good news today. And there, there is good news. Is that if 1 Corinthians 13 isn't an accurate description of your love, it is an accurate description of Christ's love. It's probably not a description of your love. You probably can't insert your name into 1 Corinthians 13 and get away with it. But we can insert the name of Christ. And we can see this in the person of Jesus. And then here's the even better news. Romans 5 tells us that He has poured out His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The good news, I know you can't do this. I get it. Neither can I. The good news is that he has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Doing more than saying we love is the work of the Holy Spirit and is supernatural. To pull this off, what we're talking about this morning, doesn't involve you trying harder. This is supernatural. We know from Galatians 5 That there's fruit that comes from a life walking in step with the Spirit. There's fruit that comes from a life when you walk with the Spirit. And what is the first fruit of the Spirit of God? Love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's wake up every morning and go, Holy Spirit, I need you. Teach me to love. This is more good news. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 promises that God will actually teach us to love one another. So it's not just that He's given us His love. He's promised to teach us how to do it right here. If you wake up every morning and start praying this promise, God, teach me to love. Teach me to love. You said you'd teach me to love. Now teach me to love. You said this. Help. Help. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. You've been taught by God to love each other. 
In closing, I want to I read a passage from Hebrews 10, and I want us as a church um, to consider how we can spur one another on towards love. How can we egg each other on? How can we spur each other on towards love? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. If you're feeling this morning like, I'm far from this. Let's draw near to God together. Don't just sit in it. Continue to recite to yourself, wow, I'm far from this. Let's move towards God. In full assurance of faith, having your heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. How can we egg each other on? How can we spur each other on towards love? Do you remember how good you were at egging people on towards bad deeds? Some of you are still great at it. If we were at the cliffs, you'd be talking somebody into diving off of something. Do you remember in your former life how good you were at getting people to drink something? We were down it. Oh, come on. You know, egging each other on. At the men's retreat this time last year, we put these disgusting drinks out. And for points, the men had to drink them. And it was like cups of horse radish, which I still can't eat because I threw it up. But... And, 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 and the pressure, you know, it's just men being men, you know, and just egging each other on. Drink it, you know, and how come we can't egg each other on towards love? I was just, well, how come these men who can egg each other on to drink a cup of God knows what, I don't even know what some of them were. How come they can't egg one another on to love their wives with the same type of passion and enthusiasm? Lover, lover, lover. <laughs> oh man, I can't drink this cup. Drink it, drink it, drink it. This is a tall order, God. I felt like so far from this. <clears throat> I feel so far from this. And, uh, and I just want to say to you today that I'm not going to quit. Just because the standard has been set and it feels so high, I'm not going to stop reaching for, for what you described and you defined to be love. I'm not going to settle for some other definition that just involves me being self-seeking and parading around and boasting and being envious and all of that. I'm not going to settle for that. And as a church, we're not going to settle for that, God. And as a church, we want to say before you that we're not going to quit because you've promised and you're faithful. Would you teach us how to love? We don't know how to do this. Lord, there's envy in our hearts, and it's demonic. 
were parading around. We do things in order to be seen by others. We're having a hard time bearing and not keeping our mouths shut and keeping our mouths shut. We're having a hard time believing, a hard time hoping. And Anyways, I thank you, Father. You've poured out your love in our hearts. Would you teach us as a church how to love? And could we um, spur one another on towards love and good de- deeds? Uh, in your name, Jesus, we pray. We're asking. This isn't some cheesy closing prayer, God. We need help. We really need help. We're so far from this, and the world around us has judged us as hypocrites because what we say is not what we do. We praise you, Jesus, because what you say is what you do, and we want to be like you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. Divide